have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 1, verse number 35. Last time we were here in John, we worked our way up through verse 37, but I want to start today by backing up to verse 35 for context sake. And then we're going to read together through verse 51 because we're actually going to cover that many verses today. I have you captive to what you see on that table over there. Just kidding. It's not going to be that long. Let's read together starting in verse 35. And again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples And he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher. Where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. The next day he purposed to go into Galilee and he found Philip. And Jesus said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida of the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael. And said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you, that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So this is the very simple account of Jesus collecting his first followers. And remember that I told you that John 
spends this whole gospel amassing evidence, if you will, that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah. And he amasses all that evidence from every possible source that he can draw from. And by the time we get to the end of the Gospel of John, he has exhausted all the necessary sources of the proof that Jesus is indeed who he claimed to be. If somebody comes to me with questions about the identity of Jesus, all I really have to do is say, read the Gospel of John. The words and the meaning of the words in the Gospel of John are very clear. And then you can draw your own conclusion after you read the book. Because as John himself says, as I've been reminding you in John chapter 20 and verse 31, but these have been written. So it's written so you can read it for all of church history so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. Again, that's John's overall purpose for writing this gospel. And as we have already studied, he started out, John the Apostle did, with the testimony of John the Baptist. You remember when John saw Jesus coming toward him? Verse 29. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And we looked at in detail at the ministry of John the Baptist calling the people to repentance, getting their hearts right for the arrival of Messiah. And now in this section that we're coming into in verses 38 to 51, we're going to meet a little group of Jews who clearly were already true believers, true Jews, as we're going to see. And they are very, very simple men, simple Galilean fishermen. They start out here to be the core group of the disciples of Jesus who then later become the apostles of Jesus. And it really is amazing to consider how Jesus in his ministry chooses these really insignificant people. He doesn't go through the whole country looking for the best people, the brightest people in every town as he starts his ministry. He just takes a small group of ordinary guys, and it's so interesting as we're going to learn today, who all know each other. They all live in the same area. They all make their living the same way, catching fish. And he turns these ordinary men into people who very literally changed the world and changed the whole course of human history. And we are still feeling the effects in this world of this little group to this very day. 
And don't you know that Jesus can take anybody and do that? Remember that Paul teaches us in 1 Corinthians that God normally, typically uses the nothings and the nobodies like me to advance his kingdom. Remember with me and look in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 29. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. Notice the wording, but God has chosen. God has chosen. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are. Why? Why? Look at the last line so that no man may boast before God. There'll be no boasting in heaven, and there should be no boasting now if you're a saved Christian. Now, the first seed that was planted here in our text is John the Baptist. He's like the first testifier to Jesus in the ministry of Jesus. And this this next group is like John in this way. They are completely alien to the Jewish religious establishment. Please notice that in this group, there is not a rabbi to be found. There's not a priest. There's not a Sadducee. There's not a Pharisee or a scribe. Not one person in this group with any religious credentials from the Jewish religious system. I want you to just think about this. Try to put yourself back at this time. These are simple, humble, rural, uneducated fishermen. And they become the first followers of Jesus. And not only did they become the first followers of Jesus, they become the first missionaries of Jesus. And not only that, they become the first preachers of the New Testament church. What an amazing testimony this is. Down in verse 41, look at it. Within that verse, one of them says, we have found the Messiah. In verse 45, another one says, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote. And in verse 49, another one says, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And the reason for the story here is, of course, to declare those statements for all of church history, for all of us to read about. We have found this Messiah who is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, who is the Son of God, who is the King of Israel. Halfway through the ministry of Jesus, these men are going to be identified as a part of the 12 apostles. But at the start here, they're just common, insignificant, Galilean fishermen, 
I find it incredible. Who, who know one another. They've all known one another before Jesus came along. Along with James and John, they all live in the same place, the same area, the same villages. They, they very well may have grown up worshiping God in the same synagogue. They may very well have played together as children. Are you getting the picture here? It's amazing to think about. And what they will launch again, as you think about that, will go and is still going to the ends of the earth ever since that time over 2,000 years ago. It's fascinating. Consider the massive reality that the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ has spread in every generation since this first one through humble people. Through the unknown, through the weak and the meek and the powerless. And that's how it's always spread from person to person to person. The kingdom advances one soul at a time. And sure, there are popular preachers and very gifted preachers who come like Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the prince of preachers who preached to big, massive groups. But the primary way that the kingdom moves is from one person to another. And that is exactly how it all started during the days of Jesus and his followers. Now, think about this. Consider the fact that the challenge for these men was really immense. They were nobodies in the eyes of the world. And they were going around the countryside declaring that Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah who himself was a nobody in the eyes of the world at that time. That's, that's Joseph the carpenter's boy they're talking about. What are they doing? And everybody in Judea looked down on the region of Galilee. And the people in Galilee looked down on the village of Nazareth. So these are about the most humble beginnings that they could have possibly started with. And again, that's why Paul made it so clear in 1 Corinthians 1 that I quoted earlier, that the advance of the gospel, listen to me, cannot be attributed to the power of the people. And, and, and it's a clear indication of that here with what we're going to learn today. It can only be attributed to the power of God. The growth of the church out of this little group can only be attributed to the power of God. And if anybody's going to boast, you better boast in the Lord, as I said earlier. Because you know what? The very next verse in that passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30 says, but by His doing, you are in Christ Jesus. 
Read that again. But by His doing, you are in Christ Jesus. Just think about what these guys were up against. It would, it would be completely normal for the people of Israel to have thought, well, okay, if this Jesus that you're talking about is the true Messiah, the rabbis will tell us. I mean, most of us probably would have thought that. The scribes and the, the Pharisees will tell us if this Jesus guy is really the Messiah. But all of them hated Jesus' guts, right? They rebelled against his message and every one of them, except a few that we learn about in the Gospel of John, like Nicodemus took part in leading to his execution. So when you think about it, these very simple fishermen had to have the purpose of God in his providence on their side. Because everything in normal human reasoning just goes straight against all of this. Now, the last time we ended in verse 37, after John the Baptist was standing with two of his disciples and saw Jesus walking up, remember, and he said to them, Behold the Lamb of God, and those two followed Jesus. Now, in verses 38 to 51, John the Apostle has split up two groups for us in this text. The first one focuses on Andrew and Peter. And the second focuses on Philip and Nathaniel. And remember, John the Apostle is embedded with these guys that we're going to talk about today, but he never likes to refer to himself. So you won't find him in there. You just got to keep that in your mind. He's in with this group. So let's pick it up in verse 38 where it says, And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What do you seek? Now remember, these two are Andrew, who's fixing to be identified in verse 40, and John, who again does not refer to himself. And in saying, What do you seek? Jesus is asking them, what is your motivation? What do you want from me? What are you looking for? Now, I want you to remember that verse 35 identifies these two as disciples first of John the Baptist. So Andrew and John are first disciples of John the Baptist. At this point, they knew that John the Baptist had identified Jesus as the Messiah. They've already heard him say that. And they also knew that, that he had identified Jesus in the biblical way as the Lamb of God first, rather than being the reigning king. He is the king, and they identify him that way later on in this text. But understand, these two guys have been listening to John the Baptist preach day after day after day after day. They are his disciples first. And when he was with them, think about it. Surely he wasn't going around all day just repeating, Behold the Lamb of God, behold the Lamb of God, over and over and over every single day. No. He would have given his own disciples, 
a full explanation of what the Lamb of God meant. So these guys were being educated by John the Baptist. He would have connected the Old Testament sacrificial system, maybe even Isaiah 53, maybe, but to Jesus so that they, they knew when Jesus walked up what that phrase, the Lamb of God, meant. So these men, Andrew and John, heard that message and believed that message had come to repent and receive the Messiah who would be the lamb slain on Calvary's tree. So, you can imagine that they had a lot of questions to ask Jesus. And then Jesus asked them, what do you seek? And here in verse 38, next, they said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher. Rabbi was a common expression that students used to give honor and respect to their teacher. And in fact, it became another word for teacher, as the note in the parenthesis says in the New American Standard. And then they say next, where are you staying? And what they are communicating with that question is this. Look, we can't cover everything that's in our minds here right now. You're asking us, what do you seek? And, and so we need to, to go wherever it is you are and we need to sit down with you. We've been hearing all about you from John the Baptist and we really want to have a long conversation with you. And in calling Jesus rabbi with honor and with respect, they have transitioned now from John the Baptist as their teacher to Jesus as their teacher. You are our teacher. They're saying, where are you staying? They, they weren't looking for a sound bite. They wanted time with Jesus. They, they wanted conversation. Of course, they have many questions to ask him. Now, remember here at this point, they are not right at this point made permanent disciples on this day. We're still in the mode where they're just examining Jesus. This is a lot to take in. Later on, they become permanent followers. And later on, after that, they'll become apostles and, and be sent out to preach the gospel. But, but right here on this day, Jesus' invitation to them is immediate. Look in verse 39. He said to them, come and you will see. This is the accessibility, the availability of God in human flesh. Never lose sight of that as we study this gospel, who this is that we're dealing with when I say Jesus, creator of the universe, God in human flesh. Verse 39 it says, so they came and saw where he was staying. Where was he staying? Who knows? We don't have a clue where he was staying. It doesn't say 
where he was staying. And there's never any need to go any further than what the Bible wants us to know about where he was staying, right? He was staying somewhere and he said, come and see. And they came and saw. So wherever it was that Jesus was staying, it says next in verse 39, and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. And if John is reckoning time in the, in the Roman method of the day, starting at midnight was when the Roman day started, this would make the time about 10 a.m. And so they stay the day with Jesus, and I would just have to bet that they stayed late into the evening with him. I mean, can you just stop for a minute and imagine having a long, all-day, one-on-one conversation with God in human flesh? Can you just think about that for a minute? I mean, we can only imagine what that must have been like. You have to wonder, I do, I have to wonder... If it was something like that meeting with the two on the road to Emmaus when he proved to them that he was the one who the law and the prophets spoke about. I mean, it would seem very reasonable to imagine that Jesus would have done the same thing with these two because he had big plans for advancing the kingdom with these two. But look next in verse 40 where it says, One of the two who heard John speak and followed him, was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And Andrew had now become convinced after this conversation. And it says next in verse 41, and this is why I can tell you he'd become convinced, he found first his own brother Simon and he said to him, We have found the Messiah. So that tells you something about the conversation that day, right? Now that he went and found Peter, must it, it must mean that Peter must have been around. So this is speculation, but it might mean he may have been a follower of John the Baptist too. That's speculation, but it's very possible. Because remember, they're, they're not in Galilee here. They're down south across the Jordan River where John the Baptist had been baptizing. Andrew says to his brother in verse 41, We have found the Messiah, and it says next, which translated means Christ. Now you need to understand that Messiah is a Hebrew word, which translated into the Greek is Christ, which simply means anointed one. And John's point here is, this is a first person eyewitness account given by objective evidence that this is the Messiah. This is reliable first person testimony. We have found the Messiah. No doubt, no hesitation, absolute certainty. We have found the Messiah. We have examined him. We've spent a whole day with him. We've been asking him questions and talking with him all day long. And what does Andrew do next with his brother? Verse 42, he brought him to Jesus. That is how the kingdom advances right there. 
He brought him to Jesus. One bringing another. That's how it happens. So, quite a scene we have here. This is the first meeting of Peter with Jesus. Look next, verse 42. First thing Jesus says. Jesus looked at him, looks at Peter, and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. Now, when Peter first meets Jesus, Jesus immediately tells him, you are Simon, the son of John. That must have jolted Peter backwards because there's no indication that Jesus was told that information beforehand. If he wasn't, can you imagine Peter was like, whoa, immediately. I mean, he is the God man. Of course, he already knew who Peter was, but more than that, way more than that, he perfectly knew every nuance of who Peter was going to become. So Jesus says next, you shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. Cephas is the Aramaic word, which was the common language that they spoke. Peter is the Greek form of the word rock, or very more specifically, stone. And here, Jesus is predicting what Peter will become. Look there with me in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18, when Jesus tells Peter, I also say to you that you are Peter. And upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Now, Jesus in the wording of this verse is being extremely specific. In the Greek, follow this. When he says you are Peter, that is Petros, small stone, Petros. And upon this rock in the Greek, rock is a different word, Petra, a foundation boulder. I will build my church. I will build my church. So of course, Petros, the small stone in this verse is Peter. Petra, the foundation boulder is Christ, not Peter. So away with that foolishness about Peter being the first pope based on this verse. Away with that. So, group one here is Andrew and Peter, and of course, John is embedded without naming himself. Now let's look at group two, verses 43 to 51. Verse 43. The next day, he purposed to go into Galilee. Now you could walk that in a day. Probably none of us could, but... Back then, they were in really good shape. It was a little less than 20 miles. It would have been a tough walk even in their day, but, I mean, they were used to walking everywhere in those days. And it says next in verse 43, they get to Galilee, he found Philip. And Jesus said to him, follow 
me. Now, it is extreme. I mean, you just got to think about this from human reasoning standpoint. It's very, very likely that Andrew, Peter, and John followed Jesus when he went to Galilee. I mean, can you just imagine they're, they're walking beside him and they're just probably continuing to ask questions and just nonstop talking all the way as they're walking to Galilee and they're going back there. That's where their friends are. That's where the people they grew up with are. Verse 44. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida of the city of Andrew and Peter. Now, it says city, but Bethsaida was a very small fishing village on the northeast tip of the Sea of Galilee. So all three of these are from the same village. Later on, of course, we know that Peter's house was in Capernaum, and, and but he and Andrew were raised, with, along with these other guys, also Philip and Nathaniel, in the little uh, village of Bethsaida. And then later on in life, Peter moved to Capernaum. So again, just think about this. All these guys had grown up together in this little small fishing village. And we see Jesus say to Philip, look in verse 43, follow me. That's a statement he's going to make again and again and again, 20 times in fact, also in Matthew and Luke. And this is not a call to a momentary decision, but a life commitment. It's present tense. It's continuous action. Follow me. That's the thrust of it. Now, we don't know what happened in the conversation with Philip, but there's no doubt that Philip followed because whatever happened between the time that Philip followed in verse 45, there must have been a very amazing conversation and experience that happened because look what it says next in verse 45. Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, look at this, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. Wow, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And we don't even need to know the conversation when we hear that. Because the conclusion is very clear, right? Now with that kind of confession, Jesus definitely had to be explaining to them how he was the Messiah from the scriptures. How he was the fulfillment of everything that the Old Testament said. He had been explaining all of this to these guys. So here you have a second, very clear testimony. First, Andrew, we have found the Messiah. Now, Philip, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote. And amazingly, it's this man right here, Jesus of Nazareth. And notice again in verse 45. Philip makes this declaration to Nathaniel. He's also later going to become an apostle. He, he's referred most often to as Bartholomew. John calls him Nathaniel. Bartholomew would have been his family name, 
Bar, son of Tholomew, Ptolemy. So he's Nathaniel, son of Ptolemy. And, and by the way, he lived in another little village up there in the area called Cana, which as you know, we'll see something special is going to happen up there in chapter 2. So Philip is absolutely convinced after spending time with Jesus. And he makes this announcement to Nathaniel and he tells him, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Joseph, as we know, is only the father by virtue of family identity. But, but Joseph was just a very, another common man, carpenter. In the eyes of the world of that day. He's a nobody. He's like the carpenter that works at the construction site down there on Hooper Road, hammering nails into wood. And you can just imagine. This is a lot for somebody to swallow about Jesus being the Messiah. We have found the long-awaited Messiah prophesied by the prophets of the Old Testament. And oh, by the way, he's from Nazareth. Now today, the old-timers have heard this before. So for you newer folks, this would be something akin to us saying, uh, he's from Pumpkin Center. About the same And so right here at this point, this is just not working for Nathaniel. Nazareth? I mean, we get it. How about he's from Jerusalem? Or even if he had given where he was born, he's from Bethlehem, the city of David. But but Nazareth? And, And he's the carpenter's son from that village? So we really shouldn't be surprised when Nathaniel says next in verse 46, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? For some reason there was some disdain for Nazareth. Just like for some reason there's some disdain across the great divide. I can't explain it, but but what did Nathaniel really have to brag about. He was from Cana. Probably like Robert. Right? Next to Pumpkin Center. Probably same distance. I mean, not much difference in those towns, right? I mean, maybe they had a serious rivalry like Mamu and Ville Platte. Them people hate one another, man. I went to a bar one time in Mamu and some people from Ville Platte showed up and it was utter blood and violence in the parking lot. I had to get out of there. But Philip is undeterred. He says next in verse 46, come and see. So they head for Jesus. And you can understand Nathaniel, man, what? Come on. And Jesus sees Nathaniel coming to him to have his questions answered in the same way that Andrew, John, and Peter, and Philip had earlier. And so, and so here comes Nathaniel, verse 47. Jesus saw Nathaniel coming to him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Now this is important. 
to get what he's saying right here. First, behold, the Greek word means shocking, stunning, startling. Behold, an Israelite indeed in the Greek, a true Israelite, a true Jew. Remember in Romans 2 where Paul says a true Jew is one who is a Jew inwardly. Not just physical, not just ethnic. A true believer in the true God. A saved man in Old Testament terms is what Jesus is meaning here. And, and Jesus says, in whom there is no deceit, no hypocrisy, no duplicity, no phoniness. I mean, this is wow factor coming from Jesus. And this is rare in a nation of, at this time, apostates and hypocrites all over the place of self-righteous people who exalted themselves and trusted in themselves and their works for salvation. This is an honest, true-hearted, genuine believer named so by Jesus himself as he's walking toward Jesus. Wouldn't you like to have that said of you by Jesus? Now, does that mean he was perfect? No. But he had been made acceptable to God the only way any sinner is, as we said at the beginning of this service, by faith alone. Genuine saving faith. Jesus here is reading his spiritual condition supernaturally. (laughs) And Nathaniel's response is really quite natural. Verse 48 Nathaniel said to him, how do you know me? You got to understand that. How do you know anything about me? I've never met you. Verse 48 continues. Jesus answered and said to him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now somebody might say, well, maybe he could see the fig tree from, from where he was. Nope. No, how do I know? Notice it says, before Philip called you. Before Philip ever went to find Nathaniel, Jesus saw him under the fig tree long before they were anywhere around him. And when Jesus says, I saw you, that means he not only saw him on the outside, that means he also saw him on the inside where only God sees Jesus didn't need his physical eyes to see Nathaniel completely through and through. It it doesn't really matter where the fig tree was. Jesus saw this man there without seeing him physically. There's only one who can do something like that, and that is God. Only someone who is omniscient and only God possesses that attribute. Jesus is God. Now, Just imagine you're Nathaniel at that moment. A man that he has never met. A man that he has never seen before in his life. A man that Philip had told him earlier is the Messiah. And when Philip brings him to Jesus, Jesus tells him exactly where he had just come from under that fig tree. Verse 49, Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God, the king of Israel. 
Now, you need to understand this phrase, the Son of God. A lot of people get very confused by that. I'm the son of Philip Sr. I'm Philip Jr., third and fourth. This is not what that means. This is called a Hebraism. It, it refers to being of the same nature. This phrase, the son of God, like the son of Belial is of the same nature of Satan. Son of God, that phrase, the same nature as God. It's called a Hebraism. Again, John and James were called the sons of thunder. Why were they called that? Because they bore the same nature as thunder. They were thunderous people. So what Nathaniel was saying was, you have the same nature as God. And let me tell you something. The Jews of that day all perfectly understood what the phrase Son of God meant, even though many people today get very confused about it. And John continues to use this phrase all throughout his gospel. So Nathaniel says, you are the Son of God, you are deity. And then he says, you are the King of Israel, meaning you are the Messiah, you are the anointed one. And so now the testimony is complete. We have found the Messiah, the one promised in Moses and the prophets, who is the Son of God, who is the King that was promised. Here we have this little group of very common fishermen who knew one another, who grew up together, growing up in this small, these little fishing villages, and they... These men have been given the most important first-hand eyewitness information in the history of the world. Not debatable. And they, this group, have been chosen as the most unexpected sources to carry this truth forward into the world. And the world hadn't got over it yet. Now look at verse 50. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? Jesus is affirming that the the reason you believe is because I demonstrated my omniscience to you. And that's okay. It's okay. It might be a bit fragile. So look, he says next, you will see greater things than these. And of course, Jesus meant that The rest of the time that you follow me for the next three years over the period of those three years, I'm going to show you things you can't believe. I'm going to show you miracle after miracle after miracle, even greater than what you have just experienced. And then we come to verse 51. It starts out with, And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, And don't forget when Jesus says that, he is referring to something that's not only truthful, but also very weighty, compelling, and amazing. Truly, truly. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now that is a tremendous statement. And all of the commentaries that I looked at agree 
that this alludes to Genesis 28, 12, where you may remember Jacob and he dreamed about that ladder that was stretching from earth to heaven. And on that ladder, angels ascended to worship God and then angels were descending to do the bidding of God on earth. And and the point of that dream was God saying to Jacob, look, I'm going to take care of you and, and I'm going to fulfill my promises to you and to your people. I'm going to fulfill the Abrahamic promise. I'm going to open up heaven and, 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 and make sure that the angels are going to go back and forth as ministering spirits to protect you and to care for you until the covenant is fulfilled. And so Jesus here borrows from that imagery to say to Nathaniel that just like Jacob experienced heaven sent supernatural revelation, Nathaniel and the other disciples are going to experience supernatural communication concerning and confirming who Jesus really was. Notice the term of son of man replaces the latter, if you will, of Jacob's dream, which signifies that Jesus was the means of access between God and man. Jesus was saying to Nathaniel, you are going to see heaven's power unleashed in my ministry. And he uses a messianic title from Daniel 7, the son of man, which Jesus used about 80 times to refer to himself. It's his favorite way to refer to himself in the scriptures, son of man. Jesus is saying, you're going to see the supernatural before your very eyes out of heaven Angels will even come and go during my time here on this earth. And I want you to think about this. Was that true? It was angels that announced to Zacharias that the forerunner would be born. It was angels that spoke to Mary. It was an angel that spoke to Joseph. It was a chorus of angels that announced the birth of Christ to the shepherds. It was angels who ministered to Christ at the end of his temptation. There were angels at the tomb and the resurrection. There were angels that surrounded Christ at his ascension back into heaven. Oh, there's angels all around, folks. And they certainly We're doing heavy work during the ministry of Jesus. So Jesus says to Nathaniel, look, I'm glad you believe because of my omniscience, but you're going to see much greater things than that. You will experience the heavens open up and see things happen during my time here that are absolutely supernatural. You're not going to believe what's going to be in store for your eyes. Now we're going to close. And I want to give you just a little bit of application here. Here we have an illustration of how salvation works. First, prompted by a sense of sinfulness and a heart of repentance, we see a seeking soul. Look at verse 38. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What do you seek? Philip said, we have found him, again indicating that he was seeking. But, but, 
Salvation also requires a seeking Savior. It is Jesus who initiates things. In verse 38, He says, What do you seek? In verse 39, He says, Come and you will see. In verse 43, He says, Follow me. In verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming to Him and said of Him, Behold an Israelite and indeed in whom there is no deceit. So listen carefully. There is no possibility for the sinner to be seeking unless the Savior is seeking first. Remember, Jesus said, You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained that you should go forth and bear fruit. So, salvation requires a seeking Savior, a seeking soul, and lastly, a seeking saint. How will they hear without a preacher? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So you have John the Baptist telling his disciples in verse 37, follow Jesus. In verse 41, Andrew finds his brother Peter and tells him we have found the Messiah and then brings Peter to Jesus. And then you have Philip in verse 45, finding Nathanael to bring Nathanael to Jesus. So here in chapter 1, as the Holy Spirit inspires John the Apostle to lay out the testimony to the identity of Jesus, we see these elements of salvation. It requires a seeking sinner, necessitated by a seeking Savior, and a seeking saint used by God to bring the message. And so the question is, if you here today were a seeking Sinner who was necessitated by a seeking Savior and He totally changed your life when He saved you. Are you now a seeking saint bearing the message of the King to others who desperately need to hear it? Guess what, folks? That's not just my job. That's part of my job. That's work that the King has for all of us to do. Every one of us. And it's done by engaging one seeking sinner at a time. And the King's message that we bring to bear is the gospel message. The complete full, biblically accurate exclamation, the proclamation of the person and work of Christ in all of its components, in all of its glory. And we are fixing to proclaim it right now through the means of being obedient to Christ in the Lord's Supper together.